Bros, this is Craig Wing, and you're listening to Talking to TK. G'day guys, welcome to episode 129 of Talking with TK. I'm your host Tristan Cannell, another bumper episode ahead. We've got former South Sydney Rabbitohs, Sydney Roosters and also Japanese rugby legend in Craig Wing stopping by the show. So an incredible story, an absolute champion bloke as well. He's got plenty of tales from a stellar career that pretty much took him from the heights of you know, state of origin, winning premierships at the Roosters, being one of the young guns at the Rabbitohs, as well as being one of, what a super sub across, well, I just mentioned state of origin, but also for Australia as well. He really owned that number 14 jersey for a number of years, and it's going to be great to pick his brain in both sports because he was a top junior rugby union player coming through the ranks as well. But I'm being really impressed with Wingy's Media work, actually. If you haven't seen it yet, go to nrl.com. He's got a regular article on there, and he also backs up on a Sunday night just through the recap on a podcast that he that he does on NRL Podcast as well. So definitely check out his work on that, and we'll also be chatting to him a little bit about transitions and all the good stuff that we regularly cover. Guys, just a big thank you to everyone tuning into the show. Season 3 numbers are through the roof again, and it's probably... Definitely down to you guys spreading the word for me, helping me by telling me, telling your family and friends. So a big thank you. Big thank you to everyone leaving reviews on Apple Podcasts slash iTunes or even simply on, on the Facebook page. Really, really appreciate your feedback and your honest advice on continuing to grow the show. So definitely do get in touch. I love everyone that reaches out either by social media on the Facebook page, Talking With TK or Twitter or Old school email, send me one, Tristan at TalkingWithTK.com. I'd love to hear where you're listening to the show from, the genre, the sports that you enjoy the most, and even some just suggestions. I always love to run ideas, and you know, I always do my best to try and reach out to the people that, you know, the stories that you want to hear. So definitely reach out and let me know who those are. So, you know, the first two episodes was Danny Baderis and George Rose. Whether you're first time here or you haven't caught up on every episode, just check it out at www.talkingwithtk.com. You'll be able to play any episode directly through the website or also have links to the various podcast apps. But if you do have a podcast app, just simply search Talking With TK. All right, guys, excited for today's episode, and I introduce Craig Wing. All right, guys, my special guest today is Craig Wing. Craig is a former professional rugby league and rugby union player with his career taking him right around the world. In league, he played, debuted for the South Sydney Rabbitohs and played 256 first-grade games across the Rabbitohs and Sydney Roosters. He won a grand final with the Roosters in 2002. He played 12 State of Origins for New South Wales, 17 tests for Australia. Switching to Japanese rugby, he actually played seven seasons over there and represented the Japanese national side on 11 occasions. Welcome to the podcast. Craig Wing. Wingy, welcome, buddy. G'day, TK. Thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure, buddy. Like I was saying before we, we met up, you know, I've been really impressed with your writing on, on NRL.com. And it's funny that a few years ago, I used to read your stuff on Raw.com. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so I'm glad that you're actually back in the, the writing side. But tell me about a little bit about the experience in, in kind of journalism. Uh, it's all quite new to me, actually. And 
it's I'm trying to get used to doing it more often, particularly the writing side of things. But for me, it feels like a a school assignment <laughs> every week. I get handed a school assignment, and you get I was a never really too, I, was, right? I was never really good at those. Yeah, because uh, I like to cram and do things at the last minute. But <laughs> it does put me under the pump a little bit. But uh, I'm enjoying it so far. Yeah. How do you actually when you're doing an analysis? Like, who do you turn to for for kind of your research? Like, what opinions are you kind of like really like highly regarded? In, uh, in try to get some ideas throughout the through the newspapers, listening to the the talk shows. My old teammates on TV, yep. what they're talking about. And uh, and there's a few guys at nrl.com that I work with as well, and they have their own ideas, ask me for my opinions, and yep. somehow it just comes together. Yeah. What else have you been up to? Because it's been a couple of years now that you've been retired. Are you also yeah. doing a little bit of finance work as well? I was. So when I retired, like a typical footballer, I felt like I had to be doing something. Yeah. Jumped into the first job that was there, which was... I was selling F45 franchises around the globe, wow. throughout Europe and Asia. Bit of travel? Uh, no, not as much as I thought there would be. There was a little bit at the start, yep. but the problem was that all the franchises were pretty much sold out in Australia, and I'd only just moved back to Australia. Yep. So they were actually talking about moving me to the UK to head things up there, but seeing as though I'd only just moved back to Australia, I thought, no, that wasn't the, that wasn't the right thing for me yep. at that point in time. And then I moved into a, a finance role. It was it was a combination of uh, broking, financial planning, um, investment, but uh, that was good. I really enjoyed the technical side of that work, mm. but the hours I was doing long hours there, and okay. uh, I'm a bit of a workaholic, so I didn't really. There was always something to do, and I'd end up just working the whole time. And and there was a fair bit of travel involved in that around Sydney, which wore me out towards the end so now I'm probably I'm taking the time off that I probably should have taken when I retired mm-hmm. just to work out what I really want to do um, yep. I've naturally gravitated back towards football because it's something that comes easily and something that I'm interested in I didn't go straight into it when I retired because to tell you the truth I was quite sick of sport okay and I just I just really needed a break but now I'm I'm refreshed and I'm looking at it through a fan's eyes now, so it's yeah, it's much more fun. In terms of a fan's eyes, how were you last Friday with your two, you know, Roosters <laughs> and Rabbitohs game for you, mate? That must be pretty intense. Uh, not really. I'm, I guess sometimes I'm a little bit conflicted in terms of which team I'm going to go for, but regardless of whichever team wins, I always seem to just jump on the bandwagon. <laughs> Traditionally, I would go for the underdog going into the game just because I've always felt like an underdog my whole life and my whole career. And I, I really like coming from that, from that, uh, from that position. But nowadays, the teams are so evenly matched. Yeah. You know, it's no longer is it are the Rabbitohs, the poor cousins with no money. They've got great administration, great facilities, uh, heaps of finance, and superstar rep players, just mm. the same as the Roosters have. So it's pretty much flip a coin as to who you're going to back going into. Into the first round, so or in, into each of those games. So for that first round, I was actually going for the for the Roosters yep. because I backed the Roosters. <laughs> but happy to see the Rabbitohs get up as well. Yeah, definitely. Hey, when you did you catch Joey's interview with Matty Johns on Sunday night at all? No, but I read snippets from it uh, in terms of his his uh, his seizures and things. Yeah, like that. Yeah, but the biggest thing I wanted to do, and it was probably what you just been talking about as well like he said when he retired he just felt an identity 
he just had an identity crisis where yeah. he he didn't have his footy anymore, even though he mm-hmm. had a job lined up with Channel Nine. He just yeah. didn't feel like yeah. he was doing what it was before. In terms of your own personal experience, from what you've just said, like what was that kind of transition like for you? It's hard. It's very hard. It's still hard now. Yeah. Uh, they say that you're not supposed to identify yourself with your work. Nobody's supposed to do that, particularly athletes, but it's impossible not to. Most of the people that you talk to want to talk to you about your job, mm. um, all the Everything revolves around it. Your whole life revolves around it. Your family life has to revolve around it as well. That always comes first. So that's pretty much who you become. And then there's not really any good support networks for post-football. There's the lucky few that that line up jobs and have good incomes as a result. Yep. Uh, might get a job in the media or something like that. But the majority, there's just nothing. It's just a massive, massive void. You're so used to having your program set out for you Uh, all you have to do really is turn up and do your best Uh, and if you're below your best or if you have problems whether it's with what you're doing in the game or anything else there's a massive support network there because you have all of this staff and all of these teammates that want you to be the best you that you can be Um, a lot of the time professional athletes are very very strong on themselves in terms of critiquing themselves Mm -hmm. and I would dare say that most of them have a um, a depressive personality yeah. in the sense that they'll make big things out of little things, problems-wise. Mm-hmm. But you always got to, you've always got a support network around you to lift you out of that hole or you've got someone to turn to to make you be a better player or someone writing you like a like your school teacher or like your parents saying come on you can be you can be a better you but when you retire there's nothing. Yeah. You set your own schedule. Because it's just unpredictable. Because I know you've got two degrees as well, right? Yeah. Like, just, that's what they always say. You've got to study and study. but You've got to study and study. But, but the you other still bit, don't know, The do other you? big thing is everyone goes, oh, so what do you want to do when you finish playing football? Yeah. The reality of the situation is that how are you supposed to know what you want to do if you've never done anything else and you have no time to go and do anything else? I think it's a little bit different these days because – the study is encouraged a lot more mm. and players are encouraged to have outside interest outside of football uh, and they do allocate time and a lot of the clubs allocate time in the weekly training schedule so players can get some skills or get some experience doing some other things. But for my generation, even Joey's, there's nothing. Yeah. You just come straight out of well, – well, for me, I came straight out of high school Straight into first grade footy. I did a, did did uni, but never had a job. Mm. Never got a chance to experience a job. I think I think it's a step in the right direction now that they have to give players their their schedules. I think they have to give them monthly schedules yep. so that you can book things in uh, in advance with professionals. But for me, it was uh, it was a nightmare when I was going through my career. I had to deal with Foxtel. And they used to try and ask me two weeks out. Well, what day have you have you got free in two weeks so that we could. Uh, so that we can book a studio and get you to do some stuff. Yeah. You just wouldn't know, would you? And I used to ask Ricky Stewart. Yeah. And sometimes I'd get criticism, well, what are you, a footy player or a TV commentator uh, or a TV personality? Where, like, where, where's your heart lie? Yeah. And the other times I would get a date, but 
we'd lose to the Bulldogs or something and the whole week's schedule would be changed. Yeah. So it's impossible to work with people that are running businesses or professionals um, when you're so unreliable like that. Yeah. So that, that, that did my head in, but it's it's good that they've rectified those kind of things now as well. Okay. Thanks for those insights, Wingy. Let's take it back to the start a little bit. Tell me a little bit about your family because your mum's Filipino, right? Yeah, that's correct. I was a little half Filipino kid growing up at Maruba Beach. Probably the smallest in every single team that I ever played in <laughs> by a country mile. Uh, that's That was probably why I had to be so fast. Have you been over to the Philippines? I have. I, actually, I haven't been since I was uh, about 21. Yeah. I've always grown ago, around but... it because my mum's best yeah. friend's Filipino and okay. I grew up out west. Yeah. So it's a huge just contingency of Filipino yeah, yeah. people. So I have heaps of Filipino friends. Yeah, so. yeah. Yeah. Um, very, very tight community, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so I, I grew up in River Bridge. Back in the day, though, there wasn't really that much... Multiculturalism wasn't that much of a thing mm. when I was growing up as a kid, especially at River Beach. So um, I actually got teased a little bit when I was younger because I had darker skin and looked really? a different to everyone else. But to be perfectly honest, as soon as I started playing football yeah. and scoring tries and best player in the team all that goes away because that's just the equalizer right if you're good at sport then everyone 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 respects you and uh especially with footy um you're one of the cool kids yeah for sure so when you what was it because i know when you went to sydney boys obviously it's all rugby union but yeah. did you split between rugby league and rugby union i did actually i i started league when i was four years old and mm. i started rugby union when I was seven, okay, and I played both of them up until I was eighteen, and I had to choose to play league or union. And I graduated from high school, yep. So I used to play three games, three or four games on a weekend, and I'd be training every day of the week. Wow! Pretty much from the age of ten till eighteen. So was your old man a footy player? My old man played a bit of footy. Yeah, more of a basketballer. Okay, but uh, just a just a mad footy fan. Did he make you? You guys all bunnies, like. Uh, yeah, so my family, growing up at South Sydney, uh, at Maroubra, right, South yeah. Sydney Heartland, parents supported South, grandparents supported South, so yep. very much a South family growing up, and actually getting to make my debut for the Rabbitohs was probably one of the biggest highlights. Uh, I'd put it on par with winning a grand final or making a, an Australian or a New Zealand team. That very, very first game was the biggest buzz, and I remember we used to... I wore my South Polo out <laughs> out for a drink afterwards, and I was so proud standing there with the Rabbitohs emblem on my chest. Because, what, you were only, like, 19, right? Uh, I was 18. Wow. Yeah, I just turned 18. Because, so. like, that was, like, their kind of – they bought a few players in as well. This is before they got kicked out of the comp, of course. Yeah, but... so we, we actually had some uh, we had some good players. I remember Tricky Trindle, we got yeah. Chris Caruana across, Brett Rodwell. You got Terry Hermanson and the Terry other – Terry Hermanson was there. Jason Lowry. Timmy Brasher. Yeah. Actually, Timmy Brasher was a, a really good influence on me. Yeah. He actually played Origin that year as well, which was which was a big buzz, and he taught me how to play fullback, which was a position I really, really enjoyed. So are these just extras after training that you guys would stay back? or uh, Just more so during training, and just he really took me under under his wing. There was a, there was a group of him, Timmy Brasher, um, Phil Howlett, and Brendan O'Mara, okay. to, and, and Sean Garlick. Gallows, uh, Pies. Yeah, that was my crew. That was my leadership group that I looked up to, and they taught me a lot. I'm, I'm very grateful for the for those couple of years I had with those guys. Yeah, before we continue to talk Rabbitohs, like, I just want to ask you about your Australian schoolboy stuff, yeah. because when you played rugby Australian schoolboys, you played with Phil War, yeah. you played with George Smith, you Ryan played Cross. with Ron Cross. Yeah. 
What was the experience like back then? Because you were number ten too, weren't you? Yeah, I was. I was. I was number ten. Uh, that was great. I really enjoyed my final year of high school. Uh, the footy we played at Sydney High and the GPS playing in the GPS was fun. But then hooking up with those guys. I think we played against New Zealand, and it was the first time New Zealand had been beaten by the by us yeah. for six or seven years or something. So that was a buzz. But who played in the, Did anyone play in the Kiwi team of, of note? Uh, I can't really remember. They're always good though. Yeah, but they're always good. <laughs> but I think we put, we played them up at Ballymore. And, and we beat him, but that was that was a great experience. Probably Ryan Cross was the standout then. Yeah, he was he was such a good player. I think he scored a couple of tries and was kicking goals. And he was our fullback. But um, Phil Wall was our captain. George Smith was our uh, was our pudgy hooker. Okay, <laughs> blew me away when I <laughs> saw him a few years later playing for the Wallabies. He How's was his line out? He was ripped. And yeah. how was his line out throws? Oh, he was good. He was all right. Yeah, yeah he was good. But uh, yeah, Australian schoolboys, great. Great, great experience. Yeah, but being number 10 in the Australian schoolboys, like how hard did Rugby Union come for you to turn professional? Uh, to turn away from Rugby yeah, Union and go get, to the league? Yeah. It was a really, really tough decision. And actually, I the, the way I made the decision was I was trying to get into university. Okay. And I applied at New South Wales and Sydney Uni. Yeah. And at the time, New South Wales Rugby Union approached me and said they'd put me in their um, development squad. But Sydney Uni actually approached me and said that they'd give, us, give me a scholarship to yep. Sydney Uni. But at the same time, Souths approached me and said, look, we'll give you a contract. And, um, oh, and the other thing was Sydney, the, the development guy that I spoke to from, the, from New South Rugby said, look, we've been watching you, you're a good player, you probably won't play senior footy till you're about 23, 24. Wow. And then on the other side of the equation. five years there. On the other side of the equation, South said, you're a good player. We yep. want to start your training with the first grade squad ASAP. Oh. So anyway, I went off and did my HSC. And the way I made the decision was if I got the marks and got into the University of New South Wales, I'd go with league. Yep. Uh, because the contract could have paid for my uni fees and I would have had some left over. And then the other side of the equation was if I didn't get the marks, I was going to take the scholarship at, the, at Sydney Uni and play union. Yeah. And then, as it turns out, I got the marks in my HSC, so I went and played league. Yeah, so well, that back, was it. back then, what's a first contract worth? Uh, oh, it was, it was tiny, actually. I think I... Uh, like 20 grand or something? Yeah, I think that was the base. Yeah. But I don't think they expected me to play 19 games of first grade in my first year. Yeah. Which I did, and I ended up... With about with match bonuses and anything, I ended up with about sixty or seventy grand, which was huge for me because <laughs> I'd never earned any money doing anything in my life before that. Except I'm, I won a couple of scholarship things from South Juniors, yep. which were two or three grand here or there. But um, up until that point in time, but for me, I had no idea about money, what things cost, what things worth, because I was living at home. Mm. I was never going out, wasn't buying stuff at cafes or shops or anything. I don't think I'd even been to a restaurant until I was eighteen. <laughs> Uh, I was just living at home with mum and dad, come home every day, have dinner, washing was done for me, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I still I still remember having to do chores up until I moved out, which was 21 years old. <laughs> <laughs> to mow the lawns and clean the pool and all that stuff. Good habits, though, to, to yeah, get into, yeah. I think. Yeah, they were good habits. I definitely do the same thing for my kids. Yeah, so when you now the debut, you got you had to go all the way to Auckland, play a massive Warriors team. Yeah. Being a being literally a kid, still still growing into your body, 
How do you feel about having to face pretty much the toughest team in the NRL? Uh, it wasn't just the, the Warriors that, that, that was tough for me. Uh, my first year was pretty tough because I debuted in first grade at 76 kilos. Wow. Uh, when I retired, I was 89 kilos. So that's a, that's <laughs> a, a big huge. change. My first year, I was 76. My second year, I was 79. My third year, I was 84. Yep. And then I just started to creep up after that. But... Um, I actually regard my first grade debut as the Charity Shield okay. against the Dragons because that was a full-strength Rabbitohs team and it was a full-strength Dragons team. Yep. I think there was 30,000 at the footy stadium that day. So in my mind, that was my, my first grade debut. Uh, with the Warriors, I tried not to think about it, but the hard part was because I was so small and so skinny yeah. and our jumpers were so big. <laughs> the big cotton the, ones. The jumpers were, yeah. <laughs> I remember I had a short sleeve jumper and it went down to my wrists. <laughs> I used to have to tape them up with uh, electrical tape and everything. But I either had to make a clean break yeah. or if they got one hand on me, they would just pull me in and just ragdoll me. So, Where did you come off the bench that day? Uh, honestly, I can't you remember. You can't remember? But, um, Has your mum still got the jersey? Yeah, yeah. I, actually, I've still got every single footy jersey that I've played in. Really? <laughs> Even my kids' ones. My dad's got them in storage somewhere. How good's that? It's unbelievable. But yeah, that... Um, that first year was a tough year, but it really toughened me up as well because it taught me how to take a hit. Mm. And it was really the first time I was playing against men, yeah. uh, people that were much older. I was, my whole life I was used to playing guys against, against guys that were bigger than me, so it wasn't that tough of a transition, but um, it was the first time I was actually playing against against men. Yeah, one of the big highlights for me for your career was like I became a really big fan of yours in '99. See, my dad works at Victoria Barracks, so I was yep. right across the road from the footy stadium. Oh, so okay, yeah. I used to meet him there after school on a Friday night, and we used to go to the footy. So I used to go for the Sharks, or I still yeah. do go for the oh, Sharks, right. and it was this Friday night game. The Sharks led the comp, yeah. and you were playing 5-8, and you guys stuck it to us for the first half and most of the second half, but there was this yeah. highlight of a try yeah. where you went through, I think it was Mitch Healy, E.T., Matty Rogers tried to ankle tap you, yeah. and then you wrong-footed Peach, yeah. and it, was, it might have even been the best try of your career. I think... You know what? I'd probably say that it, it was the best try of my career. Yeah. And such a shame it happened so early. But that, that that's probably that one try put me on the map yeah. more than anything. Um, I don't even know what happened. Those first couple of years don't really play with much game plan or anything like that. You just you just there. You want the ball as yeah. often as you can get it, and just see what you can do with it. And it just it's pretty much just autopilot can't even remember what I was thinking before the game. I was just pushing up, trying to trying to make the most of whatever whatever time I had on the field. But uh, that was um, that was my second year in first grade, and that was with a full off season and full weights program, the first proper weights program I ever did. Mm. And that jump from seventy six kilos to seventy nine kilos was the biggest thing for me okay. because. I just felt fitter, felt faster, felt stronger because I was young. I just recovered so quickly. And it was almost, when you go through those early years, it's almost like you're on natural steroids where you just feel like... Your testosterone is so high. Yeah, it's you can just do anything. And mm. I'd give anything to go back to those days. <laughs> well, it's such a good what? feeling. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I loved it. I, I was loving my training then. I was loving my footy. I was loving the guys that I was training with. And I think it showed in my footy that year. That was probably my big breakout year. Yeah, seeing that you were so young, but adversity straight away because Souths get thrown out of the competition. Yeah. For you as a team, when did you find out that – did you guys find out before everyone no, else? I didn't find out until the day that they got kicked out. Well, so I remember 
I think it was towards the end of the year. It might have even been around Christmas time. Mm. So, look, the writing was on the wall, but I couldn't see it because I was so blindedly in, lo- in love with the Rabbitohs. Yep. And I actually signed a three-year deal after that 2019 season because I just couldn't fathom that they could get rid of a club, a foundation club with so yeah. much history like the Rabbitohs and so much support as yep. well. They brought out this ridiculous criteria about stadium facilities and all this other stuff. But then you'd go and play up at Newcastle and you couldn't even have a hot shower after the game. Okay. You know, yeah. <laughs> that still sticks in my mind. Having a cold shower after a winter's wow. day in Newcastle because there was no hot water. <laughs> and then they said we didn't have the facilities. But, um, yeah, that was, uh, that, was, that, was, that was really tough. And, and that pre-season, before the 2000 season, yep. I think there was like eight of us training because everyone else had either left or found new clubs. Or, were you getting paid? Uh, I can't remember. Yeah, you probably weren't, were <laughs> yeah, you? Yeah, I don't know. I, I've got no idea. But um, we were just training and the writing was on the wall. But, yeah, that, that, that was pretty tough. And then I didn't find out until until it was announced. And I, was, I remember sitting in the Channel 9 studio expecting them to say, oh, Souths are sweet. Yeah. And they said, Souths are out. Oh, God. And then they crossed to me and said, what do you think? And I, I just, I was speechless because I just was not expecting it at all. Because you're a fan too. You're not just a Yeah, as a, as a fan too. And I was one of the ones that marched on the steps at Town Hall and yeah. all that kind of stuff. But yeah, that, that, that was a very, very sad day for Rugby League. But, uh, you know, life goes on and then they eventually got back into the comp, which was, which was great. Yeah, in terms of a perspective, because, you know, at the moment they're talking about maybe expansion, relocation, yep. too many teams in Sydney. Like, yep. as a player with a contract and then your team gets kicked out of the competition, like, from a player's perspective, how hard is it to go through that and is it a realistic situation that the NRL could force teams to kind of relocate? Uh, well, as a player, it's... I think it would be a lot different these days than it was back then. Mm. There's much more there's a lot more professionalism around everything to do with to do with rugby league in terms of administration, coaching staff, facilities, mm. all that kind of stuff. Um, but as a player it was really tough because there was just so much uncertainty and and the worst part about it is there's an excuse not to train hard or an, there's yep. an excuse why things um, don't well there's an excuse to fail yeah okay and the whole part of sport in particular footy and training and they tell you always touch the line don't cut corners all that mm. kind of stuff it doesn't make you fitter yeah it just eliminates all those excuses yeah as an it makes athlete, you mentally stronger and it makes you mentally stronger and tougher so the problem with the problem with the uncertainty is it just creates excuses mm. And, um, and, and and distraction as well. I don't know how they would do it. I mean, logically speaking, most people would assume that Rabbitohs and Roosters would be the teams to, to join up. Yeah. And because they're so, be chaos, they're so they're close geographically, but they are such different teams. Yeah. Such different supporters. Yep. Such different administration. And so successful, both of them. And in the heart of Sydney. So... I don't know what criteria or how they would how they would get it across, but yeah, that, that that's a tough one. It would Not be an interesting me. board meeting between yeah. Politis and Russell Crowe. Yeah, but interesting enough, uh, my wife is from the south of France, yep. a place called Biarritz, <clears throat> okay. or Bayonne, yep. and this and 
there's exactly the same rivalry there between Bayonne and Berritz. They share the same area. Um, they're within the same distance of each other. And there was talk that both teams were going to fold and they tried to join them. And they said, we'd rather fold than join. Really? And I thought, <laughs> wow, how funny is it that I've met a woman who's from it and she's passionately from one one team. Yeah. And her family just won't even acknowledge the wow. other side. And I, and I was thinking, how funny is that, that it's, it's an, almost an exact replica of the the situation between Rabbitohs and Roosters. Oh, damn it. Yeah. All right, so Craig, once they get kicked out, who came calling? Eddie Jones came calling in Broncos. Yeah, Eddie Jones, Broncos, and the Roosters were the top three. Yeah, so how did you make your decision to, to uh, pick the rivals? Eddie, actually, Eddie Jones was pretty convincing. I went and met him, and uh, he actually said, look, we got a plan for you. Yep. Because um, it was Brumbies at the time, right? Yeah, it was at the Brumbies. Yeah. He said, you'd, what a lot of the guys do is they live up here and then they're mm-hmm. down there. But most of them have places down there. Yep. And I've played in Canberra heaps of times for league. Yeah, and it's only, cold. Probably the only reason I didn't go there was because I couldn't live in Canberra. <laughs> um, and I, I was just starting to make it in rugby league, so I thought, I've got, I've, I've got to start in something here and mm. I, I want to see it through, so... Uh, that was a tough decision not to go with Eddie, but um, so then it came down to league and it was uh, Roosters and Broncos. Flew up to meet Wayne Bennett. Wow. Wayne actually said, "Look, I saw you play in your game at Ballymore where you beat the Kiwi, uh, beat the All Blacks, yep. um, the Junior All Blacks, the schoolboys, the schoolboys, and um, I love the way you play. These are your skills. I know that you have got natural ability. This is this is where you're weak." This is who we're going to sit you behind. You're going to learn off Darren Lockyer and the Walters brothers. And um, we're not going to rush you into it, but we're going to bring you through slowly. But you're going to grow and develop under me. Yep. And I remember getting on the plane with my dad just thinking, wow, that was just everything that anybody wants to hear. <laughs> any any young player, the great Wayne Bennett says he knows who I am first. the greatest ever coach of all saying, time. Saying he knows who I am. He knows where I need to improve. He knows how to help me. Wow, that, that's that's pretty amazing. <laughs> that went up to so the then, top. So then I went and met up with uh, Graham Murray yeah. shortly after. Graham Murray sat there and goes, so I've never really seen you play. Don't really know who you are, but they tell me you're a good player. <laughs> and Nick Politis wants you, so if Nick Politis wants you, I want you too. Wow. Uh, and that was the biggest contrast ever. And then I, I remember sitting there with my dad and I – my dad was sort of saying, look, Wayne Bennett is a pretty good coach, but he was. I knew that my dad felt that I probably should have gone to the Broncos, but yeah. it came back to university again. I was going to the University of New South Wales. I was still living at home. I was still just a kid. Mm. I, th- I probably didn't back myself, and I thought moving to Queensland by myself to Brisbane, yep. it was too big a step. I was a beach boy as well. Yeah. Uh, and I just thought, no, I... I've got, I've got to do my uni, all that kind of stuff. Who offered you more money? Oh, it was the same. It was the same cash. It was a, a, oh, Canterbury was another one, but I didn't. I went out to see Canterbury and see their facilities, but yep. I could never have played for Canterbury because nah. I was brought up hating Canterbury. Yeah, okay. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, so I ended, I ended up going for the Roosters just for the stability yep. and being close to my family. But And I have no, no regrets about that. And I love the Roosters, and I've had a great time at the Roosters. But... I guess faced with a similar situation if I was a parent 
knowing what I know about what it takes to be a professional athlete and the ups and downs that you go through along the way, to have someone, a coach or a mentor that knows your strengths and weaknesses and has a plan for you and your development, I'd recommend my son go with the things that go with a coach similar to what Wayne Bennett said every day of the week because my first year at the Roosters was actually a very, very tough year and I halfway through the year I was actually thinking about giving the game away really? just because of the, uh, the pressure, the dislocation, the... What kept you in there? I found my feet okay. and started to play well. Was the expectations at the Roosters too high? Or? No, there, there were expectations, but it, it, it partly came down to the poor off-season that I had with the Rabbitohs just before it, yep. getting strung along all the way up till Christmas. Uh, so I finished the 98 year with a AC injury in my shoulder. Mm. And that took a while to settle down. And... I couldn't do any upper body weights. Our training program was average at best. We weren't even really training full time. Yeah. And I didn't move to the Roosters until the 3rd or 4th of January okay. in 2000. But that was the year that we had the Olympics. Yep. So the season started earlier. earlier the season yeah. started in the middle of February. And they. so I was only... 78 kilos, oh, 77 or 78 kilos then, mm. and I was, uh, I don't know, 78, yeah, 79 kilos, but I was underweight uh, because I hadn't done any upper body weights. I didn't know any anyone in the team. Yeah. Uh, they too, chucked you in at fullback too, They yeah. chucked me in at fullback, which is the loneliest position in the world <laughs> <laughs> when you don't know anyone and you're underweight. Yeah. And I remember getting pumped my first few games, uh, but yeah, that was pretty tough had and this is where I draw back to having a coach that know you, knows you yep. I was asking Graham Murray as, who was our coach at the time what, what do I need to do how do I improve can you help me and he basically said look you're supposed to know this stuff when you come to first grade and I've got a team to worry about really yeah I'll never forget that um, so that made it tough uh, so I had no expert like positional coaches for you no, guys not nothing. really um, and what happened was I uh, I also, in that preseason, I got asked to do Cleo Bachelor of the Year stuff. Okay. And I took all photos and everything, but yeah, yeah. no one really knew about it. And then they announced it around the same time as the start of the competition. Oh, so attention I, just came. And they announced on, that yeah. I won. So oh. then I was uh, so I won Cleo Bachelor of the Year, and then it was all over the magazines and everything. And then the newspapers jumped on board because I got dropped to reserve grade. That week, that weekend, they announced that that was the weekend I got dropped to reserve grade. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, the media jumped on board and said, oh, here's Craig Wing, too too busy just trying to do all this social stuff. Yeah. And uh, his footy's suffering as a result. When the actual truth was, I blocked everything else out in my life because I was trying to get my footy on track. I wasn't doing anything. I wasn't seeing any friends, which was probably the biggest mistake out of anything because it yep. made me hate my football. I was just football, football, football. I'd go into training. Um, You'd been so tense, mate. It was so tense, and you're not playing that well, and then you go home, and then I'd be sp- speaking to my dad about football from 6 o'clock at night until 9 o'clock yeah. at night, and him sort of saying, oh, this could go wrong, or that could... It was just the worst. And I was seriously, around the middle of the year, I thought, you know what? This is not worth it. Um, I'd... I'd rather just quit, just go to university and play park footy. That's yeah. more fun. 
And I was thinking of doing that. And then they brought me back into first grade. And they stuck me on the bench. And I'm pretty sure they had no idea where they were going to play me. Mm. They just stuck me on the bench. And it was just by chance that Simon Benetti got injured. But at that point in time, I was thinking of giving it up. And I thought, well, if I'm going to go down, I'd rather go down on my own terms instead of just trying to listen to a coach who doesn't know me and try and do what he tells me to do. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to go out and do whatever I want to do on the field when I want to do it. So I... So what they but, do? They bring you on like a dummy half. Uh, I think Simon Benetti got injured, or they subbed me off. Subbed me on for Simon Benetti. Okay. I only had twenty minutes on the field. Yeah, and I, I made up in my mind. Right, everyone's focusing on Freddie and Adrian Lamb and all the stars. Every time they call the ball, and I see an opportunity, I'm just going to dummy and go the other way. And I did that, and I was I was scoring two tries in twenty minutes in a game, and that's <laughs> that's how I got the super sub tag. Yeah, uh, but then. Yeah, I, I started to earn. It wasn't until then that I started to earn the respect of my teammates, yep. which was probably the biggest thing. Um, was there that was a, a defensive thing, or because you were in the middle defending with the boys? It was both. It was just because I was I was having a go, mm. um, and I was making a difference for the team, and I was training hard. I mean, there was a lot of publicity about me going to the Roosters in the off season, and about the money that I was getting paid, which yep. was neither here nor there for me. Um, but when you when you're going to a, when you're a young kid going into a, a new team, all you just want is respect and mm. from from your teammates, and you just want them to want you to be there. I didn't feel that at the start, and rightfully so. I hadn't really earned my stripes. Yeah. But I got to a stage where I was starting to earn my stripes, and the 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 bigger guy, the bigger names in the team were sort of starting to talk to me and acknowledge me, and then everything turned around, and we ended up playing in a grand final. I ended up playing in a grand final at the end of that year, and yeah. How is that? Because is you came from Souths, right? Yeah. And Souths, predominantly, not a top eight team. Yeah. And then you come to the Roosters where, you know, results are expected mm. and they want you to be in grand finals every year. But to turn up to that grand final must have been amazing. It was of- huge. It was huge. It was it was a case of, I guess I was a big fish at the Rabbitohs. Yeah. And then I went to the Roosters and I was a little fish in a big <laughs> pond. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I didn't mind that, but... Um, yeah, the, the Roosters is definitely a team that always expects results. But once we started to get on a roll and we were winning and we marched towards the grand final, there's no better feeling than being in a team that's winning. It's There's such solidarity, such camaraderie. Uh, it's so enjoyable going to training all the time. Um, yeah, it's, 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 it's probably... I can't describe it. And I, being part of a winning team is... Uh, is what you play sport for. Mm, when you're that grand final, the 2001, like even you guys lost, like being on the field with someone like Luke Phillips, who probably yeah. doesn't get like the raps that he probably deserves, like he took an absolute beating that day, but yeah. he just kept coming time and time again, just get, get up, get up, back on the feet. Uh, he, um, he always got the raps from us. Yep. He was so solid at the back and self-preservation just wasn't on his list. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I, I really enjoyed playing with Luke Phillips. Actually, that game for us... We all felt we could have played another 20 minutes. If it had gone for another 20 minutes, we probably would have won because I remember we came home strong. Yep. Uh, but I think that that grand final definitely set us up for the ones that we were subsequently in a few years later. Yeah. In terms of then finding a position because they move you into the halves with Freddie, mm-hmm. what's it like actually being in the halves with Freddie Fittler? Oh, it was great for me. Actually, he was really, really good for me because he, he took, control of the direction on the field and steering the team around i was actually more like playing like a uh like a sean johnson style of 5'8 
So Chad T- Townsend takes control. Yep. He can and just pop in wherever he is. Just pop in, see yeah. something, call the ball, run, yeah. but <clears throat> then you can fade back out and wait for the next opportunity. Mm. Uh, that's how I was I was kind of playing it. And, and, and Freddie's just the inspirational leader that just knew how to deliver when things needed to be done. Would you ever override him? Like, if yeah, he, occasionally, yeah. occasionally, as I got more confident. Because you needed to do that too, yeah, right? Yeah, you do. And, and, and that's probably what I would... That's how I got my start at hooker, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because he was calling it and I was going the other way. But yeah, Freddie would just draw in that many players because he was so uh, so influential. But I really enjoyed playing. I really enjoyed playing in the halves with Freddie. Unfortunately, I didn't get to to play in the halves with him again until well after I won the grand final. That was the last of it. Yeah. Did they sign Finchie a lot prior? Did you know yeah. that he was coming? Yeah. So what happened was, I think I was supposed to play another year at hooker or yeah. I think that's what they were looking at me for yeah i always felt i was a i was a i was a halfback yep. i didn't really train much at halfback during that off season paul green was our half okay and he got injured in the first game i think he did his knee and then they threw me in there and we lost our first four or five games with you at halfback with me at halfback i was still finding my way really yeah and then i think they went out and panicked and midway through the season they bought finchie then I started to find my feet, started to get a combination with Freddie, started to get combinations with the guys around me. Mm. We started to find our mojo and then we started winning and we won the grand final. But it was too late because they'd already got Finchie. Yeah, okay. And then, and then they made up some rubbish that we were going to fight it out over the off-season for the position. But it was such rubbish because I, was, because I could play two positions and I could play well at hooker, I was always going to have to give it up to play hooker because Finchie couldn't play anywhere else. Yeah. And that was pretty much the last of my halfback days. Yeah, you know you spoke before about Muzz not really helping you be, become a halfback. Yep. When you got Ricky Stewart and Paul Green, did yep. they help you at all off the, like become a better halfback? Uh, not so much uh, Greeny because he was – would have been tough for him because he was just doing rehab the whole time and yeah. not really around the team as much. But uh, Ricky, Ricky did, did help out a bit. I mean, he's the reason why I was able to play in a grand final as a halfback, yep. really. And he he actually was very clever in building plays around me as well. Yep. But I guess there's only so much you could do in the following year when, you know, you've got two guys and one guy can, can play in another position. Yeah. So that was it. And back in those days, you'd never sort of – you would never – as a player, you would never dig your heels in and say, "No, this is my position. This is what I what I want to play, and I'm going to make this. I'm going to make this or nothing." Uh, you, you would never have done that because yep. it, it was all about the team, the team first, and nothing comes before the team, and you play anywhere for the team. Whereas these days, it's a completely different story. I know. Um, I was just reading something the other day, and I just wrote an article on about on versatility for NRL.com, but. I noticed Angus Crichton said that I'm an edge back rower on this side, and this is the position I'm going to go in. I'm going to go for, and there's I'm not playing in the middle, and I'm not playing on the other side. Mm. Uh, and and that's what, and I, I I say hats off to him if he's going to back himself and he's going to say that that's what he's going to specialise in and that's what he's going to do with his career. Then I think got it good on him. In the grand final, actually winning a grand final versus losing. What's the feeling like at that full time buzzer? <sighs> There is a world of difference. Uh, I'll start with losing. Losing is the most deflating feeling ever. Coming second is like... I'd liken it to coming last, Yeah. really. 
coming second is you came so close, but you just couldn't get it done on the day. Uh, it's such a such a deflating feeling, and then you've got the whole off season to rue your mistakes. You replay the game over and over in your head, going, "Oh, I should have done this. I should have done that." The worst, the very, very worst, is if you feel like you still had something left in the tank uh, because you just never forgive yourself for that. Mm. And actually, I remember getting on the, I remember getting on the team bus and going back to the leagues club afterwards, and it was such a contrast. I mean, when we won, it's the best feeling in the world. We went back to the leagues club, and all the streets, Spring Street and the other street around the leagues club. Yeah. They were packed. There would have been about 20,000 people outside the Leagues Club, and the Leagues Club was packed. Everyone was cheering. People were crying. It was just incredible experience. And then the following year when we lost, we went back, and it was exactly the same process on the double-decker bus on the way home, yep. and there was just no one there. <laughs> like a funeral, pretty much. It was, was kind of like no a friends. funeral. It was, it, was, it was so disappointing. But the winning side of things, it's look, there's a lot of hard work, and it's 11 months of work with guys as a group that will never be the same ever again. Mm. You might have the same core guys, but you'll never have exactly the same team. Uh, so there's a lot, a lot of hard work for a long, long period of time, a lot different to an Origin or a Kangaroo Tour. And not only is it hard work, but there's a lot of luck along the way, yep. particularly in terms of injuries, injuries to other teams, um, and turning up on the day. And winning a grand final is... 11 months all coming together at the one time and everything just working. Uh, I, can, I can only imagine how the Roosters won, how the Roosters felt last year. Yeah. Because they didn't, they probably played their best game of the year in the grand final. Though. In the grand final. Yeah. And they found form in the grand final. You couldn't have timed it any more perfectly than that. And I don't think they could have played any better than that. And their marquee players all stepped and up. And their marquee day. players all stepped up. Their ball control was outstanding. Their go forward was outstanding. Their forward pack was good. Their tackles were dominant. And it all just came together on the, on, on the day. And that was, that more than anything, more than them winning the grand final, just how they all came together and how differently they played from all their other weeks, it just blew me away. And I thought, wow, that must be such, such a rewarding feeling that 11 months came into that, came down to that 80 minutes. Yeah. And it all just clicked. Yeah, I remember what I wanted to ask you now. It's about coming together, yeah. and it's about Ricky Stewart. Adrian Morley told me a story about you guys going on a preseason camp and Sticky letting you guys have a few beers and then him waking you up at 3 o'clock yes. in the morning to do hills. <laughs> Tell was, me about that experience. That was at the old Wallaby camp at um, in Coffs Harbour. Yeah. I think it's, it was the Novotel or whatever. They, Wallabies built a, a, a training facility up there, and we used it. And that was actually where the Bulldogs scandal went down. Okay. So it was all uh, different teams used to go up there for a preseason thing. But I think that was probably a, a bridge too far with Ricky. I think, he, <laughs> I think he lost a lot of the senior guys with that one. So we all went out, um, got, got on the drink. Like we knew we were there to train hard, but we went out, got on the drink. And back then, I don't, I'm not sure if it's different now, but you used to take sleeping tablets to go to sleep. Yep. So you'd have a good night's sleep so you can get up and train the next day. So got on the drink, sleeping tablets, go to sleep. Midnight, we get everyone gets woken up, and we had to go and do hills in the dark, and it was pouring down rain. Everyone was just looking at each other going, what the hell is this about? How is this going to make us better? And I get what they were trying to do, mental toughness and all that kind of stuff, but 
that was just not uh, – we got through it, but I don't think it was one of those times where we felt mentally stronger. Yep. I mean, there was some – there was plenty of ridiculously hard training sessions that we did at the Sand Hills, or Ricky Stewart and Ronnie Palmer used to come out with some, come up with some absolute pearlers where <laughs> we'd just be doing things and thinking, "There's no way we're going to get through it," yeah. and then we'd get through it. For example, fifty hundred meter sprints on the minute. You just don't think that you could <laughs> physically do that. Every minute you got to do a hundred meter sprint fifty times, and we got it done. And that kind of thing. You would never do it these days because it's probably silly, but something like that, we got a lot of mental toughness out of because yeah. we used to think, and Freddie used to always say, it's in the bank. And when you're down on your try line, you've got the opposition four repeat sets in a row, yep. You draw on. that's when you draw on your bank. Mm. And that's when you think, well, we can do this. We've done tougher stuff than these guys have ever done. We're mentally tougher, mentally stronger. And that's where you draw on the mental toughness, but... That particular day, doing doing hills in the middle of the night in the rain, I don't think that really added anything to us, and um, I wouldn't recommend any coach doing anything like that again. <laughs> I don't think so. Now, Craig, in terms of you giving yourself a tick in terms of being an elite footballer, is it when you debuted for New South Wales, did that kind of ch- change your own mindset towards your own ability? It did. It definitely did. Playing with those guys, playing with those guys I looked at as heroes – like Freddie, like Joey, actually, Joey and Bedsy. Mm. Uh, Freddie and I used to have a bit of a rivalry with Joey and Bedsy. There was a bit of a rivalry with Roosters, Newcastle, yeah. back around that era. Yeah, all that semi final we stuff. Two yeah, teams. Yeah. And they used to absolutely give it to me when we'd play them, and we'd always try and give it to them. And <laughs> there used to be a lot of banter in the tackles that you probably wouldn't get away with these days, <laughs> which, uh, you know, like that stuff never really worried me. But, um, but to finally play with them and the best – like so as a top team, you naturally hate the other top players and the other top teams. Yep. And then all of a sudden you're thrown into an Origin experience with them. And it was the first time I ever met them. And Origin just brings everybody together. And then all of a sudden they turn out to be your best mates. I remember I was uh, – I couldn't uh, stop following Joey around like a little puppy dog. <laughs> and then that, that was just to feel a part of a team like that. You just go back to your club feeling so much more confident. Yeah. You feel a lot more responsibility. But your teammates also, must look at you differently too. Yeah, your teammates look at you differently and you feel differently and you just take on, take on a much bigger role. Any rep player going back to their club team always comes back mm. a better player. And I think that was the biggest advantage for Melbourne and for the for the Queensland team. They had so much rep experience together and so much rep experience at those at those two levels, Origin yep. and Australia, that they were always gonna get become light years ahead. Every time you come back, you're just that little bit better, a little bit better, a little bit better. Yep. And that's why they just you know, your your Cameron Smith, Cooper Cronk, Jonathan Thurston, they just got better and better and better. And I would largely attribute that to their origin and rep experience and working with the best of the best players. They just get better and better. Mm. Sticking on rep footy, 2003, you go on the Kangaroo Tour. Chris Anderson sticks you in the centres. Yeah. How, how did you feel after playing, like, doing so much development yeah. at hooker and then, I know you were a super sub, yeah. but realistically you were a super fu- sub in yeah. the halves yeah. and hooker. But that must have been a little bit out of left field. For it you. was completely out of left field. I remember uh, 
So I think I replaced Ryan Girdler. Yeah. That was actually the best tour I've ever been on. That was so much fun. We had such a good time. But uh, I was players playing because wasn't Phil Bailey the other centre? Like there was yeah, just I, people I, out of I position so. everywhere. I, I just remember being in Europe. We we actually got to Europe and then Gerds had a scan on his knee and it was just no good. Yeah. But he managed to get in all the team building and partying, <laughs> which was fun. But uh, he had to come back to come back to Oz and they were looking around for a replacement. Yeah. And they said, "All right, hey, Wingy, you're up." Well, I thought, "What? Okay." It's an opportunity. It's actually a starting jumper in a rep in a yeah. rep jumper for Australia. I was like, "Yeah, give it to me," and um, it just all came together. Uh, I played a few good games. Um, we had some amazing wins mm. where we were supposed. I think two of the games went down to the wire, and we won. Yeah, because that, that one with Brett yeah. Kamali and then Rico yeah, goes yeah. over, doesn't? Is yep. that that's the same tour, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so yeah, there was, and I, I played really well in the centres. Uh, it was um, they would have had some big centres, but for the for the yeah, Britain team, yeah, the England were always big and strong and yep. really physical. Uh, but I think we just we had more skill and more gun players, particularly like guys in the halves and mm. some guys who could really break the game open. But that was a fantastic experience. It was definitely out of left field for me, but. I learned so much in that camp because I had to learn really, really quickly. But I also uh, started, did a lot of study on what it what it um, takes to play in that position. Okay. And I think that that really put me on the mar- on, on the map as a, a utility that can play anywhere. Yep. And and it was around that period of time that I realised that I could play anywhere. And any rep team I used to go into. I used to always watch the guys in all of the positions and see what the best of the best would do to be mm. good at that position, which made it much easier for me to be a to be a utility in all the Origin campaigns that I that I experienced because I got to see what the best of the best do in every position. Definitely. Now, Wingy, let's take it to the end of your career now, mate. So, how does an NRL player get an offer to play Japanese rugby? Yeah. So. That was pretty weird. I actually here's here's one for you. I didn't know that they played rugby union in Japan until a week before I signed my contract <laughs> in Japan. <laughs> so I was at the Rabbitohs. Um, JT dropped me to reserve grade. Uh, so my first year at the Rabbitohs got injured in the first game. Yep. I was supposed to be playing halfback. Whilst I was out for three months, Chris Sandow came into the equation. Mm-hmm. Started off the season quite well. Good luck to him. He obviously couldn't play any other position than halfback. Yep. So when I came back into the team, it was, well, Craig, you have to move aside again for someone else. So I bounced around, hooker, lock, 5'8", but we had Isaac Luke coming through. Yeah, okay. Johnny Sutton was going pretty good at 5'8". Yep. Um, we ended up winning a few games at back, back end of the year. And then the next off-season rolls around... And I had to get it just before the season started. I had to get a couple of minor operations, mm-hmm. like a clean out of my ankle and a groin thing. So I missed I missed a lot of training in January. Yep. But I was still right for round one. But I remember Jason Taylor was telling me that I needed to earn my way back into the team through reserve grade. Wow. And I was thinking, oh, I had different people. Like, fair enough if you're a top team going through that process, but we weren't. We're yeah. a team that finished, I need your experience too, what? finished down the bottom of the ladder. There was, mm. yeah, a lot of people were telling me, don't play. 
better than all Sydney Bears, don't do it, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, I played, but that was a pretty low point in my career, and I got to see... It was the first time I played reserve grade since my first... Well, since 2000. Yeah. Uh, and I got to... I really got to see that my career was going to be finite. And I remember actually... One of the things was Jason Taylor telling me to play like Alan Tung <laughs> as a roving lock or whatever. That, that's what he wanted me to do. And I, th- I, I remember thinking in my machine, heart, yeah. no, no disrespect to Alan Tung. Yeah. He was great at what he did, a hard worker and stuff. But I thought, why would it co- – and, and I was an international representative player. Yeah. And I thought, why would someone tell you to play like that? Why wouldn't he say something like – play like Craig Wing or we'll build something around you. But you're totally going against all your strengths. Yeah. So that point in time, I just, I really felt that my career in rugby league was finite. I honestly felt like maybe another injury and I would have got dropped to reserve grade and had to work my way back through there. So I made up in my mind that I sat there and I thought, what, what do I want to do left with my career? Mm. If I retired tomorrow, what would be one thing that I'd regret? Yeah. And Playing footy overseas was one thing, mm-hmm. different country, different culture, working in a different country. And the other thing was rugby union. I always felt like I wanted to give rugby union another crack. Yep. So I was actually talking to some French teams okay. for a few months, but they were dilly-dallying around backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards. But at the same time, I realized that that was going to be my last year in rugby league, even though I had two more years on my contract left at South's. And somehow I got back into the Origin team that year just because I was playing every game like it was my last. Mm-hmm. And that was really, really refreshing. But um, it was just by chance that I met an agent, a player agent here in Sydney. And I told him about my desire to go overseas. And he, yeah. and he found out that I had a Filipino passport as well as my Australian passport. Okay. And that's like a golden ticket in Japan because in the – in the teams over there at the time, you could only have two foreign players on the field at the same time. Okay. The rest had to be Japanese guys. So you count as an Asian. And then you had yep. two plus an Asian player. Mm-hmm. And because I had a Filipino passport, even though I played for Australia in a different in rugby league and yeah. all that kind of stuff, it didn't count. It was like I'd never played rugby union before. So <laughs> every, every the team that I played in had two foreign players plus me. Yep. So that was a huge advantage, and that's that's what got me to Japan. So, and, and the Japanese, like when they want to do a deal, they get it done, and it happens quickly. quickly. So yeah. they just said, "Here's an offer. Do you want it or not?" There was no, but this, but that, dilly dallying around. It was as opposed to the French. And yeah, I signed it, and then a couple of weeks later, I got a, a solid offer from France. But I said it was too late. Gone. Yeah. So where did you live? Was it Tokyo? I lived in Tokyo for two years, yeah. which was good fun, and then I moved down to a city called Kobe. Yep which is 40 minutes away from Osaka, pretty much the same as Parramatta is from Sydney. Mm-hmm. Was there any other kind of Australian or, you know, guys that you could you yeah. hang out with? Westerners yeah, there was there? actually. Um, a bloke by the name of Mark Gerard mm-hmm. played for the Wallabies. Yeah, uh, he was good. He was probably their star signing over there. I actually played with another guy, JP Nell, from, from the Bulls yep, in South, South Africa. Africa. Yep. He was a great player. Another guy called um, Darren Murphy who was from Queensland. Did you guys all just hang out off the field? Yeah. It's good fun over in Japan. And because there's usually about six to eight foreigners in each team, Mm -hmm. and the families become really, really tight because you're all there doing a new thing in a different country and you're all in the same boat. Yeah. It's actually actually really good fun. Is everyone full-time? 
Yeah, everyone's full time. Yeah. Yeah. Oh no, well, the foreigners are all full time. Okay, and there's a handful of Japanese guys that are full time, but the rest of the squad are company workers. Okay, but they go to work from. Seven till twelve, and because then like come... a big corporation owns you, right? Yeah. Do they work for him? Oh uh, yeah, they... yeah, yeah. They work for the company. Okay, yeah. So they all work for the company, and so they'll go to work from seven to twelve, and then from one till six, they'll come to training. So what would you guys do all day? No, but the prop, the pros would go, and we would do our weights, or we'd okay. do some skills or something in the morning, and then we'd do the team stuff in the afternoon. Yeah. As an import, was there like a huge expectation that you guys have to perform? Yes, always. We were the ones that had to get the game won. Yep. Yeah, but it's funny because over there, all the foreigners just cancel each other out. Okay. So ultimately, it comes down to the skill of the Japanese guys. Uh, and there's and that's probably where the biggest variance in, is in between between the teams. Yep. Uh, the skill level of uh, of the Japanese guys. Some guys would be worthy of playing Super Rugby over here. Yep. And other guys would be lucky to make a make a high school team. Is it true they banned you from driving or something? You had to oh, yeah, bikes? at that particular team. I, could, I couldn't believe it. So at that particular team, there was a company policy was that you couldn't drive to work. Yeah. And I think that was more so designed for the company workers that worked in the city because you just – too many people, too much traffic. You can't really work out what time you're going to get to work. Yeah. Whereas we were driving away from the city – and there was a car park in front of our training facility of 120 car parking spaces. And there was not one car parked in it because we weren't allowed to drive to training. <laughs> uh, even on a rainy day, we couldn't drive to training. We had to, had to ride our bikes to the train station and catch a train to the other train station where we were training. And then we had to walk about 2Ks from the train station to the training ground in the rain and then do the, re- do the reverse on the way home. It used to drive me insane. <laughs> Uh, I ended up buying a car anyway, Yeah, and I had to park. I would drive to training, but I had to park in a shopping center one and a half k's away, walk through all these flats and climb over a back fence uh, <laughs> to get to training. But then I used to get sprung by by the, the coach or the manager yeah. climbing over the fence. So there was a few of us that used to pile in my car, and we'd climb over the fence. We just think this is absolutely ridiculous. Even on game day, so on game day in Tokyo, it would be it would be thirty five degrees, yep. and massive humidity early in the season. So in the preseason, and we'd have to catch a bus, three trains to get to the game with our team suits on, sweating up a tree. Oh God! And you'd get to the ca- you'd get to the game and you'd be buggered <laughs> before the game. How long would it actually take to drive though? Uh, it would take. It'd take forty minutes. Half okay. It was it was yeah. like driving to Homebush from okay. the city. Yep. Um, so it wasn't too bad. And then, bad luck if you got injured in the game and on the way home, you just have to. You were crutches to, on the tra- public yeah, transport. Yeah, you have to catch the public transport. <laughs> on the way home. It, was, it just it blew my mind. It really blew my mind. But that just sums up Japan. If there's a rule, regardless of how nonsensical the rule is, yeah. the rule's there, and you don't break the rules. So sometimes, like, I think that's why everything just works so well in Tokyo because yep. people don't break the rules and they have their systems and everything just runs like clockwork. But occasionally you get situations where common sense should prevail mm. and it just doesn't. All right. We talked about Eddie Jones before. Now, Eddie Jones is coaching the national team. Is he the one that approached you about representing Japan? Yes, he did. I had no idea that I could have represented Japan. Yeah. It didn't even come into my mind. I thought when I went to Japan, I went, went to Japan, any kind of representative football or any kind of international football was well and truly done for me. But after living there for three years, gave me a tap on the shoulder and said, Wingy, 
can we catch up for a coffee? Yeah. And I caught up with him and he said, how would you like to play for Japan? I said, what? How can I play for Japan? And he explained it to me. I could qualify through residency. Yeah. After three years living there, I hadn't played for Australia. I hadn't played for another country in rugby union before, so it was like a clean slate. So I went for it. Initially, it just started out, I just wanted to play a couple of games for, for Japan and play international footy again at the top level and work with a, with a slick coach because I always wondered what it would be like to work with Eddie. Yep. And this was my opportunity, harking back to the days in 2019 when I was possibly going to go with him to the Brumbies. What's the difference it's, between him and like someone like the other guys you've had in, in league, like Sticky and that? Uh, actually, they're not too dissimilar. Yeah, very intense. <laughs> very, very, very hardworking. Yep. Very, very hardworking. Ricky Stewart, Eddie Jones, the good coaches, you can never... As a player, you just you have to deliver and you have to work hard because... They're working hard. Yeah. They work twice as hard as all the players do. Um, so they certainly lead by example. Yep. Um, yeah. So, But yeah, it was Eddie that tapped me on the shoulder and said, do you want to play a couple of games? Originally, it was just a few games. And then a couple of years out from the World Cup, he said, oh, do you want to play? I, I remember he said, oh, look, there's a World Cup in 2015. I was like, mate, I won't be playing footy in 2015. Because you would have been 35, right? Yeah. But then 2013 or 14 rolls around. He goes, do you want to have a crack at the World Cup? I said, yeah, why, <laughs> why not? not? <laughs> <laughs> and then the rest is history. Because you made the squad, yeah, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. So I went to uh, I went to the UK and got to play in a World Cup. How was it? Because when you guys beat South Africa, and I say you guys because yeah. you're obviously yeah. part of their team, but that's got to be the greatest upset in the history of Yeah, rugby, it was right? incredible. It's like nothing else I've ever experienced in my life. It, it literally made world headlines. Yeah. Uh, it was the biggest upset. The first time I'd ever been in a, in a, in a stadium – seeing in the dying minutes of the game when the game's on the line, seeing opposition supporters cheering for us. And then after they scored, just people crying. Mm. Even the South Africans that were there were happy for us because they knew that they were... Everyone in that stadium was, was part of something really, really, really special. Wow. And yeah. then... But you had a good tournament because you yeah. guys beat Samoa. You beat yeah, we were, the, we were the... So the only game we lost was to Scotland who we had to play three or four days later. Mm. And it was their first game of the tournament, and it was three or four days after we played South Africa. The highs of... You would have so, never come off the high, right? Yeah, so it was tough. And we were we were neck and neck with them up to about the 60-minute mark. Yeah. And then they st- scored two quick tries, and the game was done. But if we were had if we had been fresh like they were, it, it would have been a different story. But we ended up winning all our other games after that, and we were the first team in history to win three of our, out of our four pool games and not make the quarterfinals. Yeah, because it came was, down to four and against, didn't it? So that was, that was a bit bittersweet, but that's a, that was a real shame because I would have got a chance to play against the Wallabies, which would have been awesome. Uh, yeah. But it had been a cool way to, to wrap up, you know, a stellar career. You were, you were pro since you were 18 years old. Yeah, and I'd been playing international football since senior international football from 2002, and I played my last international game at 2015. Yeah. So uh, that, that, that was... That, for me, like I could, probably could have played another couple of years in Japan, but mm-hmm. I thought that was, that was what I should have finished my career on. Yep. It, was a, it was a nice high. I went back and p- finished my competition, uh, my, f- finished the competition with my local team mm-hmm. in Japan, and then I retired after that. But that was, um, I just knew it was just going to be downhill from that World Cup. Yeah. Okay, Wingy, let's wrap it up with a couple of personality questions. Yep. First one, what was your favorite venue to take Alliance out? Because I know yep. you love that place. Take Allianz out. What's your favourite venue, and did you have a bogey ground at all? The favourite venue by far and away was Suncorp. Okay. 
just the atmosphere there. I played my first Origin there when they opened the ground, and I have never experienced a roar of the crowd going through your bones yeah. like I did on that day. And my bogey grounds, I didn't really have a bogey ground, but I had a ground, I had a couple of grounds that I hated playing on, but probably the biggest one was the one down in Melbourne. Was it Olympic Park? Oh, the old used, one. That they used yeah, to play yeah. on. It just, With a running track in that. It just felt uncomfortable. Uh, there would always be a big, I think it was a big southerly that would blow. Because yeah, the field hardly fit on the actual. Yeah. Yeah. It just felt, it felt squashy and they always knew how to play the winds. Yep. Um, I just always felt like I was coming out of my own, off my own trial line. I had no <laughs> space. I hated playing at that ground. All right, final question, Craig. Now, it's my dinner party question. You got five invites to a private dinner party. Yeah. Now, only rules, no family or friends. Okay. But you can invite anyone dead or alive. <laughs> All right, okay. Uh, who would I invite? Definitely Tiger Woods. Yeah? Uh, well, golfer. <laughs> He's my number one because uh, I love my golf. I really, really love my golf. Um we use injured right now, guys. He's he's yeah. done his MRI golfing too much. <laughs> <laughs> uh, who? Tiger Woods, probably. Jeez, I've never really thought of this before. Um, uh, Bill Gates. Okay. I'd like to invite Bill Gates and um, Steve Jobs, yep. and I'd sit them beside each other. Yep. So that's three. You have quite a battle. I've got, I've got two left. Yep. Um, uh, Nelson Mandela. Yeah. I think he'd be a good one just to hear his story, what he's been through, what he had been through. You can apologize for beating South and, Africa. And Muhammad Ali. Yeah, nice. Yeah, yeah. Perfect. Definitely All right. Wingy, really appreciate you joining me on the podcast. Before I let you leave, Contact details for Wingy. You can find his website, www.craigwing.com.au, and his Twitter and Instagram is quite easy. It's just at Craig Wing. That's it. Wingy, my man. Thanks so much for sharing the stories, buddy. Thanks, mate. Appreciate it. And that, guys, was Craig Wing. Another great episode. So definitely, if you enjoyed that, share that one with your family and friends. I'm, I'm pretty sure the Souths and Roosters fans probably enjoy that the most, but I'm sure that all the leagueies really enjoyed it catching up with Craig's stories. It was really interesting, especially his experience in Japan. So some great stories there to share with everyone. If you haven't yet, please review the show. You can do that via Apple Podcasts or iTunes or pretty much any podcast app or jump on the Facebook page, just talking with TK. You'll be able to leave a review on there as as well. All right, guys, next week on the show, we've got Australia's fastest ever over 100 metres, and that's Patrick Johnson. This has been in the works for a little while. It should have been done in Season 2, but held it back a little bit. So really, really, really stoked to bring you this episode. Plenty of great insights from a great person. And, you know, to be Australia's fastest ever person, you know, it's quite the feat, especially when you consider he started running, I think it was at 26 years old by memory now. It was really, really late in uh, in an athlete's life. So he's got an outstanding story. It really is one not to miss. Definitely check out all the old episodes at www.talkingwithtk.com or simply search Talking With TK on your podcast app. I really appreciate, like I mentioned at the top of the show, you guys sharing it with your family and friends and just really helping me spread the word on social media. So please take me on any posts or definitely do get in touch via direct message on any of the social medias. Tristan Nell on Instagram, Talking With TK on Facebook or Twitter or Facebook. LinkedIn's just Tristan Cannell and yeah or old school email Tristan at talkingwithtk.com 
Alright guys, hope you enjoyed the episode with Craig Wing. Next week, Patrick Johnson. But for now, I'm Tristan Cannell, and this was Talking with TK. Talking with TK.